Hello and welcome to the Disc Dump Podcast. This is the show where we watch movies, play games, or listen to music in an effort to decide, are we going to keep the disc or are we going to dump it? Today is a very special episode, as always. I am joined by Cam from Spy Hearts. What up, homie? I'm Bad Cam. Bad Cam. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. I'm glad to have you back, man. Yeah, it's always fun to come on. And in the past, I was on to talk about Goldeneye 64, as well as the Slipknot Volume 3 album. I am loving this deep dive into my youth because I no longer have it and I'm just desperately clinging to get back to it. That's the name of the game. Nostalgia and house cleaning. It's a weird combo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So we are talking today about Batman 89. Um, So what was your life like when you encountered this movie for the first time? So I feel like this is a generational line. Um, And it's something that I used to like to pull out more often than I do now, because now it just makes me sound old when I'm like, where were you for Batman 89? And they're like, (laughs) I wasn't born yet. You're like, oh, oh, right. Um, So for me, like, I feel like in my lifespan, and I was born in 1980, there was three huge movie events. They were um, Titanic, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and Batman 89. And Batman 89 was the one I was, you know, obviously that falls first in the chronology. And I remember the amount of push that Warner Brothers, you know, had for this movie was unbelievable. And it really was like a bat craze that we've never seen since where it was like even things like, I mean, not only was your supermarket taken over by all of this Batman themed merch and, you know, food items and all that sort of thing. I mean, I have a box of 1989 Batman cereal still wrapped in my fridge right now. Um, I know, right? Uh, So, like, there was just stuff everywhere. All the clothing. You could walk into, like, a Walmart. It was just wall-to-wall. All the kids' clothes was Batman-themed. And they were even, like, um, hair hair salons were even offering bat cuts where they would shave the bat signal into your hair. (laughs) Like, it was... Do you remember? I don't know. Like, this is another one, but like when Seinfeld was going off the air, and it was just every company was trying to market something Seinfeld themed with their brand. That's what was going on with Batman in '89. So it was just insane. That's wild. Yeah, I wasn't around for that, but it's it sounds crazy. I grew up watching this movie, but like I remember on the VHS commercials, Alfred would be trying to sell like American Express cards that have bat this bat signal on them and stuff. It's like it took over everything. There were Pepsi cans and like uh, just Batman one and two, especially were like huge, even to the point where in the 90s, I was still feeling like the ripple effect of it. Definitely. And for me, like I was a kid who grew up watching the Batman, you know, 1966 TV show and that Mm -hmm. movie. Um, in syndication, I would watch that show constantly. So like, I really did love the Batman universe and I wanted to see this movie, but my parents were not the type of parents who were like, oh, our son wants to see the movie. Let's go. They were like, meh. (laughs) So (laughs) it wasn't until it hit video, which would have been about 1990 ish, 1991, I guess, because there was more delayed home video releases in those days. And you know, I had collected all the trading cards and all that sort of stuff. So I was very like aware of what this movie was and I was not ready for it. I was a little too young and I found it actually quite upsetting when I saw it the first time of how violent it was. I just wasn't prepared for Batman to be that violent. I was so used to the Adam West 66 um, uh, TV show and movie. So it wasn't like I didn't even make it through the movie. I remember the part where I checked out was when Joker stabbed the guy in the throat with the pen. And I was like, I don't want to watch this anymore. And so I left. 
And it wasn't until, honestly, Returns was coming and my friend was, we were going to go for his birthday party and he was like, you've got to go back and watch the 89 one. And I fell in love with it then. And Returns was, I think, one of the greatest Batman movies of all time. So like, I really got into that whole universe of Batman, more so tied into Returns. But the 89 one, I mean, even though I didn't make it through it the first time, that movie had such an impact over that period of childhood. Hell yeah. I used to, like, I literally had, what year did uh, Returns come out? Like, 93, 94? 92. 92. So, I was a year old. (laughs) Nice. um, Yeah, so, I remember in the 90s, like, I just would play that on loop. Because then the Batman, the animated series was a huge deal back then, too. Mm -hmm. So, like, when I was a little kid, everything had to be Batman. Like, everything. So like we had Batman toothpaste and I don't know, it's it's crazy how like Superman is kind of marketed as like the perfect superhero. But by far and away, Batman is the more popular one. Yeah. And in 1986, there'd been the huge comic boom for Batman where you'd had the Dark Knight uh, Returns and also the Killing Joke, which reframed Batman for really the versions we've been living through ever since, which is more that really dark and gritty character. And this movie is feeding off of that rediscovery of the character big what time. Yeah. So speaking of rediscovery, like, okay. So we definitely need to talk about, like, we've talked about that this movie has, like, was a huge phenomenon. It definitely has a legacy that, like, Tim Burton, Batman's, a lot of people are like, that's, that's the Batman I think of. When you think of Batman, is that the Batman you think of, Michael Keaton? Hmm. Um, it tends for me to fall more into eras. So if you say, what is the definitive Batman of kind of that early Warner Brothers movie run? Yes, it's the Tim Burton ones that cast the shadow over everything until you get to the Nolan era. And even like um, the energy of this movie and Returns is felt in that animated series you referenced, which was incredible, but very much borrowing from that approach it really isn't until nolan comes in and takes a different tact that i I do think like this movie owns that era of batman 100 100 percent. i like i love the chris nolan batman movies they're like some of my favorite movies ever i'm just not a huge christian bale fan Mm. so like when i hear like live action batman who do you think of go it's batfleck i know a real travesty but yep the scene where he like fucks people up in that in the like warehouse is the best Batman fight scene you're ever going to get. But yeah, so but Michael Keaton, I thought he was pretty good, except for the way he moves. <laughs> the way he moves in this movie is so silly. I mean, that suit is like a coffin he's wearing, so I have some sympathy. But like, it's an interesting choice and actually very controversial at the time. People were up in arms when he was cast. Because he was known more for being like a comedic actor and, uh, you know, Beetlejuice, Mr. Mom, stuff like that. And uh, people were not having it. What I like about the performances, I mean, his Batman is really solid. I think they they know that that suit is like a walking, you know, coffin. So they know they can't do a lot with it. So it's built all on iconography. It's moments of him looking cool and doing things, you know, standing still, um, throwing a punch they just kind of pick all of their moments him coming out of the shadows but they also know they cannot do like that ben affleck you know action sequence 
Right, right. Like every time he fights, it's just like, I'm pretty sure you'd have gotten your ass kicked as soon as they stepped a little to the left or a little to the right. <laughs> like you couldn't have stopped them. <laughs> There's a moment in Returns where he like does a thing where he like bends over and runs in a circle. And it's incredible to watch. Like <laughs> it, it's it, unbelievable. There's a like clown on each side of him. Uh, I, people go back and watch that in Returns. It's worth it. But yeah, like it feels in some ways almost like the shark in Jaws. Uh, the costume here is so restrictive that it's like, do what you can with it. And it definitely feels like they're picking their moments. I mean, there's a shot at the start of this movie early on first, like 15 minutes where it's him looking down over a rooftop and they've hand drawn the character because even that they couldn't get down with that suit. Really? <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um. So, okay. I, I like Michael Keaton. I don't think he's the greatest actor in the world either, but well, you know, what about, is the, go ahead. Do you like it? Do you like his Bruce Wayne? Cause his Bruce Wayne is really idiosyncratic. We've never seen a Bruce Wayne like this again. I thought he was a better Bruce Wayne than a Batman. Mm. How about it, you? What do you think? He definitely captures that sort of eccentric millionaire in a way that none of the others did. They went more for, you know, tortured or more serious minded like his character is a total scatterbrain you see him just kind of like wandering around that party looking lost um i like that version he's like someone who feels like a total recluse and uh it's different like it's a odd tact for your lead character to have and one i just don't think we'll see replicated yeah he's a friendly batman since when do you have friendly batman <laughs> so silly well, it's like you see friendlier like Bruce Wayne in like, you know, the 66 show with Adam West or even animated series like Bruce Wayne is very much like a society guy. And it feels like that's something they've kind of gotten away from, even though I think like George Clooney had it in the uh, <laughs> deservedly yeah. hated Batman and Robin. Right. <laughs> oh, Clooney. But what was up with that party that he had at his house? Like he has all these like big head honcho people there and they're fucking like gambling and shit, like throwing dice. And I'm like, what is who? Why is Commissioner Gordon here? Why does he look like this? What is he doing? <laughs> was that like a almost like setup for him to do surveillance? Because he's listening in on so much of what they're saying and getting reports about this, you know, break in at the chemical plant. Like, did he invite them all there just so he could listen in? I'm guessing so, but then he invited journalists too. Those journalists would have been picked up by the seat of their pants and thrown out that door if it was modern day times. That's also true, yeah. Yeah, they were just like, "Can you tell me more about these things that annoy you about work?" Here you go. <laughs> They're just well, like, well, I love off. that. Like the journalists in this movie, not the greatest of characters or portrayals of journalists, but like they are so clearly there to explain to an audience what this universe is. Right, right. It's an interesting tool. Like a lot of them, like comic books, especially are like, here's a journalist. And he's like, all right, well, this is going to be a long story. And then you have the comic book. Like, I don't 100% feel like this movie was like that, but they were definitely a device more so than characters. Um, Vicky well, Vale, what do you think of her? <laughs> Vicky Vale, I feel so bad for Kim Basinger. Like, I think it's tough because there's not a lot of very memorable Batman romantic interests from the comics who are like really well developed. You know, Catwoman is obviously the one you would go to for that. And they have for most of the movies since Vicky Vale, it feels like they've written her a little bit blank. 
the character screams a lot. It's like a lot of scenes of just start screaming, start screaming. The romance is very quick and whirlwind. Um, it feels like the sort of thing you would write into a 1980s movie. I think they did a much better job with Michelle Pfeiffer in the sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, they're just like, well, we need a woman in the role. So that mm-hmm. way he can save somebody. But I feel like that's basically the beginning, middle and end of her character is just like, let's kind of make her matter. But overall, she doesn't. And it's like she's just like a plot point. I feel like she's not really a character so much. Well, it also is like you have the whole bit about her, um, you know, him wanting to confess that he's Batman to her and that she gets entrance to the Batcave in a very underplayed scene. And (laughs) they are putting a lot of energy behind this romance that really is just like a drunken hookup. And then that's about it. Like they don't spend a lot of time together in the movie. Yeah. Like, I feel like they might have three minutes of on-screen time together, but they do kind of do the, like Batman is in a giant house, like the scene with the big long table. That was funny. But then when they're like, okay, let's, shed the formalities and let's hang out with alfred and it's like butler's quarters like that was kind of cool i like all those scenes like this movie is just chock-a-block full of memorable scenes it's absolutely filled with them which is why i think in some ways it holds up so well even if like some of the story elements are a little dated or clunky because this movie was rewritten a lot on the set um but like there's like good character moments throughout. It's more like when you look at the bigger picture of what Vicky Vale really does, because really she's also there to give the Joker some sort of motivation. The Joker's motivation switches constantly throughout the movie. And at mm-hmm. a certain point, it's like Vicky Vale is there to be this, you know, this person that the Joker is pursuing. And right. it's like, okay, what does the Joker want? Like, here's the question. What does the Joker want in this movie? Yeah, it's a good question. Cause Sometimes he wants to kill everybody. Sometimes he wants to kill Batman. Other times he wants to fuck Vicky Vale. <laughs> so. And then he gets angry because Batman is getting press. So it's like this war for like attention, the most attention. Yeah. yeah in Gotham. <laughs> but then there's this whole like kidnapping Vicky Vale at the end. Like it's very unclear what the Joker actually wants. That's kind of true to the point of the Joker, though, isn't it? Like, what the fuck does this guy want? Other than being determined to kill Batman. Other than that, usually he's just like, if you're good at something, never do it for free. I don't know. (laughs) It's true. There is like a, obviously he's a very, you know, chaotic character. But like, usually there's like some sort of moral message he's trying to get across. You know, in like The Dark Knight, which I think did the Joker the best in terms of writing an actual adaptation of that character there was the whole concept of underlining how human beings and society will fall apart if you introduce chaos. Like he had a core message that he was pushing. Whereas like this Joker, mm, homicidal artist um, wants to like basically have all the people look up to him, but also step on them, I guess. Right. Like he wants to, his whole thing is he wants to trick people into liking him so he can kill him and feel good about it. Like, poor yeah. Bob. Bob was my favorite character this time around. This is the first time I watched this as an adult. He's like, Bob, you're not my number one man. And he's just always like, Bob, this is why you're the best. And then he fucking just kills him for no reason. It's so good. It's hard to think of many villain performances where every single moment they're on screen, they do something memorable. 
And it feels like Jack Nicholson, every single scene, whether it's a line of dialogue, whether it's a weird bit of physical acting he does, whether it's, you know, something to do with the costume or makeup or something, every single moment that character's on screen, they're finding a way to just jolt the movie to life. And he does have top billing. He's probably, I think in screen time, the Joker has more screen time than, you know, Bruce Wayne slash Batman. But boy, it's just, it's an unbelievable performance. I remember at the time, the movie was not reviewed. It was reviewed well enough, but not like glowing praise. And I remember like Roger Ebert in his review said something along the lines of like, Jack Nicholson has far fewer moments of inspiration than usual here. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Like, it's unbelievable how quotable this character is and how I've just so many of these weird little quirks he has are just ingrained in my mind now. Yeah, he's so good. I, like the makeup left a little to be desired, but when he was just like his regular skin tone, it was interesting because it still kind of looked like they put on skin tone on his face. So he just didn't look quite right the whole movie and his like prosthetic smile and stuff. They were so good. And I'm like, why did Jack Nicholson say yes to this role? Like, I feel like he's a very into himself kind of guy. I wouldn't have picked him for a psycho killer in a kid's program. You know, like how did they win him over? Like back then, comic books were like for young people and like that basically covered like grown-ups didn't respect them so why do you think he said yes um i think there i think there's a couple reasons that nicholson signed on one thing was in this era you are 100 percent right like comic book movies were for kids like studios looked at them that way and so they often felt like they needed to to draw in adult moviegoers, have a level of prestige attached. So if you look at like Superman, the original one with Christopher Reeve, they've got Gene Hackman, they've got Marlon Brando, and they're putting those names over Christopher Reeve. It's like, it's okay, this movie's respectable. You know, you've got Oscar winners in this film, come see it. And I think they were taking the exact same strategy here, where they knew they wanted a name for Joker. And I knew that Jack Nicholson was the number one guy they wanted all along. It was always like the most obvious because he was such a go for broke kind of crazy actor. They were like, we want Jack Nicholson. And they were after him for a long time. And he was kind of like hemming and hawing. So at a certain point in negotiations, they actually turned to Robin Williams and were like, hey, are you interested? And Robin Williams was desperate to do it. Like he really wanted to play the Joker And so he was like very quickly, like, I am down. And Jack Nicholson then was like, no, no, I'll do it. And that was how they kind of used Robin Williams as a bit of a bargaining tool. And Jack Nicholson also got back end on this movie where he got, I don't remember the percentage, but it was a lot. It might've been even like 50%. Really? That's crazy. That's a lot. Especially considering everything was Batman. Yeah, like I think Whoa. they said he made something Dude, like, now I'm like $60 million or something Williams at that time. Like, that would have been amazing. Yeah. The tragedy of like Robin Williams with the Batman franchise is, yeah, they teased the Joker with him. And you're like, that's someone who would have brought a lot to that character as well. But then, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, negotiation thing. So I think they kind of felt bad. But I know Tim Burton wanted to make a third Batman after, um, you know, Returns. And it was going to be Robin Williams as the Riddler. And 
that movie, you know, Warner Brothers after Returns, which was so dark, they were like, we don't want anything to do with uh, this kind of energy. We're going to break, you know, shake Damn. it up and bring in Schumacher and go more light and colorful. So at that point, Robin Williams was out. He would have been a great Alfred in his older years, too. Oh, he would have been so good. That that wisdom just like oozes off of him. Oh, that would have been good. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Alfreds, I feel like we've never gotten a bad Alfred. Every Alfred yeah. has been so solid. Yeah, it's, I mean, hmm. even the one in the 66 TV show, Alan Napier, like he's a little, I think it was Alan Napier, was a, like a little bumbling, but he's also like iconic. You're right. I don't think, I wonder if a bit of that is because if you're hiring an Alfred, you're looking for like a very durable, mm-hmm. well-respected character actor, or in the case of like a Michael Caine, you know, a former movie star. So like, it's someone who has so much gravitas and just decades of acting experience that it's hard to find a bad one. Yeah. And Michael Caine is the one that's in this one, right? Uh, Michael Caine. No, he's in the Nolan ones. This is um, Michael Goff. Michael Goff. Have you seen him in other things? Cause I mostly know him from Pepsi commercials and from <laughs> credit card commercials. Sure. I mean, he did pop up in Tim Burton's sleepy hollow you know, a decade later, he was also, if you go way back and watch like a lot of old hammer horror movies, he pops up in those a lot. Okay. He was so good. Like he nailed the like fatherly figure, but he also like kind of directed the goofy brained Batman. Like, no, we want to go this way, sir. He's like, okay. <laughs> so like, I don't, I don't know. Like every bat, every Bruce. Yeah. Let me try that again. Every Alfred has just been, so pristine for totally different reasons like what do you do you think that this guy brought anything particular to the table other than he's just amazing i think what he brought was an element of grounding um alfred as like this character who very much looks over uh bruce wayne because you see that bruce wayne is really like kind of scattershot in this movie that he's the one kind of holding things down and you didn't really get that off the 66 Batman. You would have if you were a comic book fan. But for people who are like more just, you know, knew the character from TV or movies, I think they kind of gave the character a little more, as I kind of said, gravitas, a little more, just a sense of his role within Batman's life. Mm-hmm. He's so good. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> um, hmm. Are we missing any other top build people in this movie to talk about their performance? Like... Well, what do you think of, um, <laughs> um, what's his face? Robert Wall as Knox. As Knox. Which one is that? I'm sorry. He's the other reporter, the one who teams up with Vicky Vale. Oh, I love him. I thought he was so great and so bad at the same time. Let me see what notes I wrote about him. Uh, I love the sleazy journalist. He should, he says, he looks at the giant mirror and he says, maybe it should be Bruce Vane, but I'm like, there's so many one-liners from this idiot. <laughs> like he was a pretty popular comedian at the time. It's not someone I don't think people really know anymore. He did that show. Oh, it was about a sports agent. Was it Arliss? Maybe. I think no. it might have been Arliss. I think it was an HBO show uh, of the like 1990s. I think. Uh, but yeah, like I like some of his tossed-off lines, but he's very much a character who's there. Because the studio is kind of scared to play this movie for the nor or for the normies, you know, it's like we need characters like this to give it a little more mainstream accessibility because so much of it is weird. Right, right. 
I don't know. I feel like he and Billy Crystal would get along real well for some reason. Like, I feel like they have that kind of the same like vibe about them. Um, a lot of the kind of like yuck, yuck, waka, waka kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so there's a guy in this. The character's name is Eckhart. He's the lieutenant that the Joker owns before he's the Joker. Yeah. And that guy and the guy from the first Batman Nolan movie, Batman Begins, I feel like they're like the same guy. Like they both just hit that sleazy, nasty detective cop that's like totally crooked. Oh, he was so good. There's that great moment where uh, Commissioner Gordon's like, who's in charge? And they're like, Eckhart. And he's like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of tells you everything you need to know. The fact that this guy looks like he sleeps like on a ratty couch and never bathes is perfect. He's actually... The actor, um, you know, he's not someone who's had like this like long career where we all know him from so many things. His name was William Hootkins, but he played um, the X-Wing pilot Porkins in the original Star Wars. He was Porkins. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So he has like very memorable appearances in these big blockbusters, but no one really knows him by name. Um, Eckhart is, I think really essential though in kind of creating the world of this movie where people it's 1940s by way of the 1980s and it like these people look like 1980s actors but everyone's behaving like they're in the 1940s and i kind of like that dress up kind of style and also just kind of the griminess to it and an actor like that really fills that out and even also like jack palance as like the crime lord it's like Mm -hmm. this is a character like straight out of like a warner brothers gangster movie of the 1940s and uh, right. it's a lot of fun to see him just like camping it up like the uh, the Home Alone, the fake mobster movie in Home Alone. I feel like that guy should be the guy who's like, keep the change, you filthy animal. Like he would be perfect to be that guy. With the Jack, you're my number one guy. Yeah. He is the lucky deck. <laughs> yeah, it's just like everything he says, he's like hitting 100 with it. He's like, I cannot play a single line of this in a subtle way. Everything needs to be very exaggerated. And I think, like, you can definitely say this movie uh, avoids subtlety at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> like, everything. <laughs> everything about it. Even, like, Commissioner Gordon. I'm not a fan of this movie's version of Commissioner Gordon. Uh, nothing against the actor, Pat Hingle. He's great in so many things. But, like, I do not recognize this as Commissioner Gordon. Me neither. It's like he needs a top hat and a monocle. Like the whole movie, he's just like the Monopoly man. I don't know. I do not find him respectable at all. And it's like hard to believe that he and Batman end up with this like symbiotic relationship somewhere in this universe because I have no idea how they could get to it the way that he's like shooting dice and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. Well, it's like I like a moment where he first sees Batman and he's like, oh my God, which seems to be his catchphrase. (laughs) He says that a lot, but like you don't this movie is not interested in the journey of discovery of commissioner gordon where he has this like you know horrified realization but then grows to really respect the character you basically go from that moment to the very end of well here's the bat signal we're now relying on this guy right right and other cops they have uh, harvey dent in this movie missed opportunity for two-face mm-hmm. but they and they don't bring him in on the second one either right no, there was like rumors that the uh, Christopher Walken character in the second one was going to be Harvey Dent mm. and that like when he would get fried by Catwoman, it would scar half his face and he would become Two-Face from that point. 
but just through rewrites and various other things that was all dropped. I know like um, that Billy D. Williams was always a little hurt that he didn't get to play Two-Face because he was so clearly being set up for something. It's weird to introduce Harvey Dent though in this movie and give him like, there's no moment that tells you anything about this character. Right. Yeah. And I thought he would have been amazing. Like, I think the world was ready then for a black Two-Face. Like, bring him on. I would love that. And he's in Star I mean, Wars, can... right? Yeah, he was also, yeah, Star Wars. I mean, this movie was shot in London, and I believe it's some of the studios used in Star Wars, I think. So, like, there's a lot of, I think, character actors being peppered back and forth. But, yeah, like, Billy D. Williams, it's funny. Like, I don't recall anyone being at all, you know, caught off guard by him being Harvey Dent in 1989. And there was, if anything, disappointment that you didn't get to see more of him because people knew that Two-Face, you know, was Harvey Dent. Right. Like, and he's like, I'm taking a bite out of crime. But then that's it. Like, that's all you get from him. He's not really important in the plot whatsoever. Does he play uh, Harvey Dent in the second one or no? No, he's not even in it. He's not even in it. What a bummer. Yeah, I haven't watched the second one in my adult life, so it's it's uh, it's a little foggy for me. But like, I, I thought he was great for the five lines that we had him. I was like, yo, if we get Two-Face, that would be amazing. I knew we weren't going to in this movie. I couldn't remember if we do in the sequel, but guess not. I think it's because like in this one, I guess his main role is to have someone that Commissioner Gordon can talk to. So the two of them can kind of banter back and forth about the state of the city. Um, and the mayor is played as a bit of a bumbler in this movie. Whereas mm-hmm. like in the sequel, I think they play up the mayor a little bit more so they don't even need Harvey Dent. It's just the mayor and commissioner Gordon. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. The second one, man, that's a star studded cast too, but yeah, we're here to talk about the first one. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Like, uh, I just, I have a lot of really good memories of this movie. The Joker is amazing. Batman's okay. Vicky Vale's okay. But overall, this movie like is a relic of its time. Everyone's hair is very 80s. It's so 80s. Like my hair would have been cool as shit in the 80s. I got these big curls. Anyway, but <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'm I don't know if it really held up so well in 2022. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I know what you're saying. To me, this is like kind of a uh imperfect perfect movie it is so clearly this like crystallized vision of what like a blockbuster movie could be in 1989 for better or for worse like in terms of the the scripting it's it's messy like as we've said like where the joker's going in this i don't really know a lot of it you know feels like batman on the sidelines there's issues with like the vicky vale character but it's just like focused so much on the individual scenes that like all the scenes come to life. It's just that they don't connect very well. And so it becomes this movie that I think is more fascinating for its atmosphere, for its character invention, for the, you know, the, the elements like this art direction, the makeup, the costumes, all of the world building of this movie is so immersive that I find it consistently rewatchable. Like I've watched it countless times, even though I sit there every time and will note weird things like why does the Joker climb up the cathedral? None of this makes any sense. Why are there bad guys waiting at the top of the cathedral to help him? This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) There's all these various things that just keep nagging at you. But like the movie is such a pure vision of what I think they 
could achieve at this point. And Tim Burton would be a little more off the leash with the sequel. And I think that's the better of his two movies. But this one, I have a bit of a theory. Like the 1980s was such a weird time for blockbusters. I mean, it was known as the cocaine decade for a reason. And it was just like, (laughs) these blockbusters were like frequently insane. And I wonder when I was, you know, rewatching it the other day, it's like, does this movie kind of mark the final party for movies of 1989? Because, you know, you look at what else is coming out that, you know, that summer, for example, you've got Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which you could say, hell no, that one is also important, but it's also introducing early CG technology. Um, It's kind of paving the way for where movies are going. You're going to get in like two years, Terminator 2, which is going to introduce, you know, the whole digital revolution, which will be carried forward in Jurassic Park. What Batman is doing is all of practical stuff. It's models. Even they're like, as I said, hand drawing like Batman and the Joker at the end falling off the, you know, the tower. All that stuff's like hand drawn. It looks kind of strange. This feels almost like the final bizarro party to wrap up 1980s blockbusters. That's very well put. I didn't think of it that way at all. Huh. Because even even like returns is like pivoting into different things. Where they're using, you know, CG to fill out, say, like the penguins and when the penguin unleashes his army of, you know, birds. There's like kind of that 90s technology is starting to kick in and that movie feels much more focused in that regard. This one has that kind of like that 80s sloppiness about it. Yeah. (laughs) Even like, you know, you're saying all the the wardrobe and everything. Yeah. kind of just like that whole uh what's the word it was known as like the me decade in this era of just like gross extravagance and that's contains so much within the character of the joker in this movie yeah the purple suit oh it's so good the uh yeah it's, uh, go ahead it's all it's all about just like an obscene amount of just like look at me itis <laughs> kind of thing yes the look at me syndrome i love it so okay, you there's so many things I want to talk about. Like I think Vicky Vale and the Joker at the end is absurd. It's so ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But let's talk about the museum scene, or is it mm-hmm. a restaurant, or is it it's a both. museum? <laughs> it's just a museum restaurant where they have the original portrait of George Washington. <laughs> like what is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> and he came prepared to fuck this place up. He's like, let's bring cans of paint. <laughs> like. What is happening? Why does that scene happen? And a boombox playing Prince. Yeah. Like, unbelievable. <laughs> and he, that's why I kind of go with the whole, like, this is the party to end the 80s kind of vibe. Where when you've got Prince, you know, throughout the soundtrack, it kind of uh, adds a little bit to that, <laughs> supporting that theory. And again, like, this sequence, it's it doesn't drive the plot in any real way. It's just, like, a moment of, like, character invention it's just basically like let's see the joker lay waste to a museum and why is it so much fun i wonder if this is also like a little bit of the mtv effect because you have mtv showing up in the mid 80s and a lot of sequences in this feel like kind of influenced by mtv culture yeah like i feel like this could be like if you cut out any of the the audio from the movie and you just played the prince song that's a music video in the 80s like that's what Mm -hmm. they would do and uh yeah, music videos kind of just like took over the culture that all media was like, oh, it's like a music video. Let's watch Friday the 13th where everyone is dressed up like they're new wave. Like, is that really the way that the world was back then? 
I don't know. I wasn't around, but I feel like the answer is no. <laughs> like there were still people who just wore jeans and T-shirts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you had like Top Gun in 86 introducing more of that hyperkinetic editing, which was something that was such a feature of music videos. So it feels like that kind of energy is working in here. That's why this movie, I understand anyone who is like, this movie isn't really very good. Like it's campy. I like my more serious Nolan-esque or Robert Pattinson Batman to what this movie is doing. It feels a little too cartoony. But it's such like a bizarre amalgamation of everything that was going on at that specific point in time. Like this movie could not be made like three years later. No, it's, but it's so like it's just so it's like a time capsule for sure. So good. Uh, the fighting is absolutely absurd. I feel mm-hmm. like I had more to say, but like, I don't know, man, like this this is so good, but it's also so bad. I don't know. Like I did find myself losing interest at various points because it's like so Tim Burton, like you said, it's like the universe, the world building, all of that. The style is more important than the actual plot of the movie. Like was Tim Burton a thing before this movie? I feel like this is really what pole vaulted him into the public zeitgeist. So he had done Pee Wee's big adventure a couple years earlier, and that's what got him this job he'd done beetlejuice as well uh the year before this movie but he was hired off of um peewee boy that was a bold move <laughs> i guess if it's mm-hmm. a kid's show or that's what they were looking at it like it's a kid's thing but still like i don't know now everything is basically black and white and like big eyes and oh my goodness what's happening here the moon is so large like I don't know, like, I really set, this was like the groundwork for all that is Tim Burton forever, I feel like. And uh, it's, I don't have anything against Tim Burton, but the plot of this movie could use just a sprinkle of continuity. Just a little bit more would be great, you know? Oh, yeah. And I do love that, like, they would hire someone like a Tim Burton in this era, like a total stylist, and be like, do whatever it is you do. Like, you would not have that happen nowadays in this era of like franchise management you know like marvel's not gonna create a movie that looks like batman 89 for example but tim burton i remember reading interviews with him where he said like people frequently criticized like the plots of his movies and his response was always like i don't really care like that's not what's interesting to me it's more of this world building and stream of consciousness kind of you know, these events just kind of taking place. And that's what it feels like. We've talked about the Joker's motivations shifting every 15 minutes. Um, I don't really know what's going on with Batman chunks of this movie. Um, And you can say the exact same thing about Returns, where the Penguin has like five different plots that he (laughs) embarks on throughout the course of that movie. It's like he's more interested in just examining these characters in moment-to-moment scenes than actually sitting down and figuring out like an overarching story. And like, yeah, I feel like he does get the overarching story thing later, like Planet of the Apes and stuff. I think I feel like he did that one, right? <laughs> well, that was more of a bat cleanup job where he was he came in last minute to direct that one. OK, yeah, I don't know. Like Sleepy Hollow was good. I feel like that as much mm-hmm. of it was like scenes. It also had a, a reason to movie, if you will. <laughs> this one has no yep. reason to movie other than movie. <laughs> It feels like a lot of it is driven by Tim Burton's very dark sense of humor as well. There's a lot of just 
you know, things of like, uh, for example, the Joker, when he like fries that gangster down to like a skeleton and then is like carrying on a conversation with the skeleton. It's like there's a level of darkness to this comedy that we've never really seen again in like depictions of the Joker. Like they tend to go just like really gritty and in your face versus like this very clearly twisted and psychotic character that the movie's trying to make campy and kind of like comedic. Mm-hmm. Um, they make like Joker tends to be scary later on this Joker. They want you to laugh along with him, even though he's incredibly sick and you can definitely feel a very young Tim Burton really channeling himself into that. And it's the sort of thing he would do later in like movies like Mars attacks, for example. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah when joker does the silly things it's like all right yeah he puts on you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses would you (laughs) yeah so silly so much silliness but and the gun that's like six feet long (laughs) yes (laughs) it feels like tim burton is so not interested in like logic in moment to moment it's like all about just like the individual scene and he hits endless home runs throughout this movie like the whole like you know the batmobile charging into the bat cave um that moment you're talking about where it's the batwing swooping down at the joker like there's all these iconic moments that like tim burton knows how to frame perfectly and knows how to make like just maximum impact out of every moment but it's like stringing them together seems to be his struggle right (laughs) so good though like it's there's definitely a lot of nostalgia with this movie it, it's a feel-good movie, even though it's dark and gritty. Uh, the only other Joker performance that I feel is like similar is Mark Hamill. Anytime yeah. Mark Hamill's the Joker, it's like got that same twisted nature to it, but he also is like gonna kill people with crowbars and stuff. So he definitely goes a little darker, but he also is the one who's making all the jokes and being silly and stuff. So like, I really enjoy Mark Hamill. Like other than if we're going to take Heath Ledger off the table, Mark Hamill is my favorite Joker. Yeah, I I somewhat agree with that. Like I think uh, Hamill and Ledger both really nailed it. I think people often like to do the who's the best Joker, but it's like there's such specific versions. The only two that I would say are comparable are like Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix, who feel like they're kind of doing the same version of the character in mm-hmm. some ways like there's there's little differences but it feels like a very similar depiction of that character whereas everyone else is kind of doing something different it's like what's crazy about these movies is that batman consistently remains the same batman does not change that much but the joker is so vastly different in every iteration of the character every person brings a little something something to it and everybody kind of goes a little crazy after they do it (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like it's it's interesting how the main character is less of a draw than the actual like villain and it feels like it's always this showcase that actors get to really just cut loose with it's interesting when you watch like the special features on you know the batman 89 blu-ray that like jack nicholson like just has so much to say about his portrayal of the character he's on camera giving interviews talking endlessly about his work with the character like a lot of actors wouldn't be that interested but it seems like it's a role that people are just genuinely interested in and i think it's because like when you watch every joker scene in this movie he's doing something different in every single scene he never repeats himself it's always like these weird little quirks that you'll see once he'll never bring it back again and every scene he just finds a way to inject something new So it's almost like as an actor, it's forcing you every scene to kind of 
come up with new behavior that's going to feel true to that character. Yeah, I'm over here just thinking about how Robin Williams would have done it so crazy. <laughs> with his improvisational like mastery, yeah, it would have been it would have been I think similar but different where he mm-hmm. would have brought that similar just like coming up with a different concept every single scene. How do I make the scene feel alive? But his I think way of tackling it would have been different because Nicholson is more of that classically trained actor who's very good at going over the top. But like, you know, Robin Williams is a comedian so you would have a different tact on that character, I think. Yeah. It's really sad. We'll never know. Today is actually the day of that we're recording this. Today is the day Robin Williams died in 2014. Is it really? Wild. Yeah, today's the day, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Crazy. Wow. I really loved yeah. Robin Williams. But anyway, do you have any concluding thoughts on this Batman movie? Yeah, the Danny Elfman score ah, is yes. unbelievable. It's it gives this movie so much life. I mean, the imagery, you know, the production designed by Anton first, who won an Oscar, I believe for this movie, he actually committed suicide. So he couldn't even do the sequel, but I think his work here is astonishing, but like that score by Danny Elfman. And it's not just the Batman theme, which is legendary, but even moments where it's like the Batmobile racing through the woods or outside of the, or or leaving the chemical plant. Like he just comes up with endless, amazing musical cues. One of my favorites is actually in the chemical plant when Jack uh, Napier is in there and they realize that they've been set up and it kicks in with this like kind of low, almost like clown music, just endless moments from Danny Elfman of just pure inspiration. I was actually lucky enough a handful of years ago, they did a tribute to Danny Elfman music at uh, basically at the theater in my city in, Va- in Vancouver, put on by the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. And they did several cues from both this and Batman Returns. And to hear them actually played in the room was unbelievable. That sounds awesome. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, specifically the scene where you'd like see the Joker for the first time. And like the building and also the clown influence. Oh, it's so good. Danny Elfman is family guy made a pretty good joke. It was like John Williams versus Danny Elfman joke. It's pretty funny. You'll have to look it up. It's a good time. But yeah, they're like, he's just so like upbeat. And John Williams is so like whimsical. Anyway, beside the point. Um, yeah, the, the score for this is good. Danny Elfman is just he always fucking hits, though. Like he did the music for the new Doctor Strange movie. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm, yeah. There's literally a music fight in that one. <laughs> Danny Elfman yep. basically gets to like compose a battle scene. It's amazing. Being sort of the age I am, I feel like I was very spoiled by superhero scores where you had the Danny Elfman stuff, the um, John Williams uh, Superman scores. And that I get so frustrated when I watch superhero movies now and so many of the scores are just so disposable. And mm-hmm. it's like, I was under the impression growing up, like these movies had to have incredible scores, a little bit of that, you know, influence I'm sure from stuff like star Wars or Indiana Jones, where it's like, you want big themes. And like, that doesn't really exist now. I like the scores for the Nolan films. I like the score for the new uh, Batman film, but like there's an operatic nature to this that I just think is incredible. (laughs) And it mixes, it's such a weird, you know, combination of like film noir style, um, Gothic, kind of atmosphere there's a lot of gothic elements in this movie and then this score that's kind of like operatic it really just does blend together in this very unique package of a movie it's oh very well done very well done nowadays i feel like they just go oh we need a really good score 
How about Hans Zimmer? Let's just give him the money. And it's like, but what about Danny Elfman and John Williams? And I don't know any other ones. I'm sorry. That's it. (laughs) Do you think they should bring back the Danny Elfman Batman score? Yeah. I mean, since Michael Keaton's like, I'm in, let's do more Batman. Why not? get the whole crew back together let's make this happen let's get let's get the third one that we've always wanted the sad part is that he's playing batman in the now uh vaulted batgirl movie and the flash which who knows what's going on with that one at this point they if they don't replace the guy who plays the flash it's never gonna happen (laughs) like at this point he's like robbing people and stuff like what the fuck ezra (laughs) come on man I would love to see Tim Burton team up with Keaton and do like a, you know, like a bat, uh, Dark Knight Returns kind of thing of like an el- uh, older Batman. I think you could do something really cool with that. I think people would be excited about it. Um, whether they're willing to pull the trigger, I don't know. And also, would they let him make a movie that feels like, you know, his two Tim Burton Batman movies? I, I don't know. I-, I know that they will not let the guy who made Spawn... Um what the fuck mcfarlane mcfarlane they won't let him go anywhere near the production of his own movie and that's why we haven't gotten the new spawn movie is because he's like i want to have my style in there and they're like nah so would i don't know he's not nearly as big of a name as tim burton but at the same time like uh, i could only hope that they would let it happen everything tim burton makes gets this like hot topic cult following (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like why wouldn't they let him but they might not you know one of my favorite uh, results of this movie's massive success was that like the studios were like, holy smokes, that superhero movie made an ungodly amount of money. I think we there's a lesson to be learned here. And I think that lesson is that kids want old timey pulp heroes. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't they wanted superheroes. It was like they want old timey pulp heroes. So we got stuff like Dick Tracy, The Shadow. The Phantom. It was like all of these like old like radio serial characters that they were like, that is clearly what people are asking for. <laughs> and as a big fan of the Dick Tracy movie aside, like uh, that was not what people wanted. No, <laughs> <laughs> I actually have uh, like a seven CD set of a 1920s radio show of like Batman, Superman and Robin going on adventures together and they have the commercials and everything. Oh, it's so good. Like get your Dakota rings and Kellogg's pep. Like so good. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, it would be kind of cool to get a modern day version of something like that, but not in the eighties and nineties. Nobody wanted that shit. (laughs) No, no. And I mean, they never really replicated the success of this particular movie. Like I think quality wise returns is a, is a step up, but in terms of like box office, no, it was a step down. And the parents groups who are, I think already on edge after this movie really did not respond well to the sequel, uh, especially because it had so many like McDonald's tie-ins and everything. It was like aimed directly at children. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I I do miss this is also kind of marking near the end of the era where you would market incredibly violent, dark things to kids. And uh, it's over now. We don't do that anymore. No. Yeah. Like the first Ninja Turtles, they use their weapons. But then all these families were like, no, no weapons. So in the second one, they don't get their weapons out a single time. But boy, do they talk about Domino's Pizza a lot. Like it's so, so crazy how movies do not do that anymore. It's wild. In the 80s, you had all the stuff like, 
you know, Goonies and uh, Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and all these just like very twisted, dark kind of like fairy tale kind of adventure stories. And Batman feeds right into that on top of all the MTV stuff and all that sort of thing. And it's just like that era is so gone now. Yeah. And like, like you just said, it all ties together. Like this movie is the center of a big knot. That is the knot that tied the eighties shut. And it's it, very few movies have such an act. Like what was the big end of the, um, the double aughts? in movies nobody knows like there's all kinds of movies like it's this movie is like definitively like the 1989 movie so i think i think i could make an argument for two, the end of the aughts was avatar boo. but it's not a, yeah like it's not an exciting end it's not a big fun one where i'm like like i love going back to batman because it feels like really as i said like a party to end that decade Avatar, it's more like, well, it kicked off all the 3D stuff that would plague us for a decade plus. The heavy um, investment in CG technology that would just continue. But it's not like I go back to Avatar and I'm like, boy, what a fun way to kind of kick off the next decade. It's, I don't, maybe Avatar is actually not the end of that era. It's the kickoff to the next era. So, I don't know. Yeah, like... I don't know. I feel like everything after the nineties blends into like one continuous motion. Whereas like the difference between 1979 and 1980, you can just see the culture just shift abruptly over that like one year and the same with 89 to 90 and then 90 to 2000. And then everything else from there has just kind of been the same except a little bit less, uh, soft powder blues and hair highlights. Otherwise it's pretty much (laughs) very similar. Yeah, it just turned into how much can we continue to evolve and exploit CG, mm-hmm. which it's like you watch movies now and they use infinitely more CG than the stuff of the early 2000s, but it doesn't feel like it's refined as much as you'd hope. Right. You know, like I should not be watching Jurassic Park or 2001 and thinking this looks better than like the latest Marvel movie. Yeah, that man, that's a what a solid way to make that movie that like they just absolutely killed it. The fact it still holds up is wild. Anyway, Jurassic Park. Uh, so Batman. Um, well, here we've discussed it. We know where we're going with it. Like we, we, this is our feelings on this movie, but we live in a digital era. Mm-hmm. I watched this movie on HBO. I own it on DVD and I watched it on HBO because I had to bounce between TVs and I figured it would be easy to save my spot. Knowing that, do you think this disc is worth keeping or should I dump it? I think this one, sometimes when we, I think, talk about movies, it's easy to come to like a qualitative um, result. It's like, this movie's not good. You can dump it. The mm-hmm. thing about Batman 89 is I think it's entirely dependent on your connection to it because I think it's very easy to sit there and have this objective look at the storytelling and be like, this movie doesn't really work as well as it should. And I don't connect to it. In that case, I'm like, it should get dumped. But I think if it's like, you know, someone like me who just absolutely adores living in that atmosphere and ambiance of this movie and just soaking up all the art artistry of it, then I'm going to keep buying it. You know, I've upgraded every single time. I had the VHS, the DVD, the Blu-ray, the 4K. And, you know, if they ever do an 8K, I'm sure I would buy it as well. But there's only a select number of movies I would do that with. And it's because this movie holds such a place for me, but I don't think if you have that connection, it demands it. Yeah, I really don't have that connection. 
Like, I really liked it when I was a kid. I remember being in kindergarten and like it's half days when you're in kindergarten. So my grandma would pick me up. I'd be at her house and I would just watch Batman one and two and then do the same thing the next day. It would finish right in time for Batman Beyond to start. So like it, it just kind of was like a Batman power hour for an entire like spring. So I, I don't know, like while I remember that, I don't know if it necessarily brings me back to that time when I watch it. This is the first time I've watched it since I was like 20. So I guess that's technically my adult life, but this is the first time I really watched it like with a critical eye and I did lose interest at a few points. I don't know, man. I think that I don't have that emotional connection like I used to, and I probably should give it the dump. I think that's fair. Like, I think when you talk maybe more about returns, there's a, I think a much stronger argument for that one than maybe 89. I think 89 is so, I don't tend to like to champion nostalgia because I find people just get blind to nostalgia and they'll give things a pass that don't deserve them. Mm-hmm. I think in like a case like this, nostalgia overrides a lot of the storytelling issues, which I think I can freely admit are exist within this movie. And so for me, it just becomes this sort of rewatchability of scene to scene joy and art direction. But I give complete pass to anyone who's like, this Batman movie doesn't really work for me. And I had a question for you. You know, you're wearing a Batman t-shirt, we should note right now yep, for the yep. recording. When you, you know, if someone were to ask you the question, as I will, like, what is the definitive Batman movie for you? What would be your answer? The definitive Batman movie is without a doubt, The Dark Knight, unfortunately. Like, it's just the greatest superhero movie that's ever been made. Uh, Maybe rivaled by Infinity War. But if we're talking DC Universe, The Dark Knight is the king of all Batman movies. Dark Knight Rises is cool. Batman Begins is cool. Like the new Pattinson movie was fucking dope, but it's not like when I think Batman, that's the movie. And it's mostly because of Heath Ledger, if we're being honest. Yeah. And like, I would agree that the Dark Knight is the best Batman movie, hands down. But I guess like so much of this to me is just that this movie is sort of this cultural artifact is just so fascinating within its time and place. And just having that awareness and really soaking up just that entire unbelievable Batman craze that existed in the late eighties that just has never been replicated, no matter how popular other Batman movies were. Yeah. Like I think it also has to do with the limited amount of media you get. Granted, there were hundreds and hundreds of hours of media to be had, but back then like a movie theater release was a huge deal. Whereas now we have billions of hours of media to consume like it's never going to have that same punch that like the movie event of the summer has you know yeah and there was no guarantee when this movie came out and was a hit that there was going to be a sequel it was like you know like people i remember talking being like oh my god do you think the penguin will be in the next one or you know having those conversations with people but it was never like now where you are 100% guaranteed that not only are you going to get three sequels, you're also going to get spinoff shows on HBO Max or whatever Mm -hmm. else. Uh, You know, Disney Plus is going to have like a new, uh, you know, six episode miniseries coming out every two months based on the thing you like. So to me, like this one just has that kind of special kind of feel about Mm -hmm. it. That's very it's lost. Like you just that just sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, it's definitely a little microcosm of the late 80s. And uh, yeah, so 
that's that's where we're at though much love much respect batman 89 we're gonna dump you but it's because you're completely available whenever i want to watch you anyway so um you're on a show called spy hearts and uh it's all about spy stuff why don't you tell them about it yes so basically the way spy hearts runs is we look at a different spy movie every week and we do the big stuff so james bond jason Bourne, austin powers mission impossible all that sort of stuff but we also look at really obscure things so some crazy 80s movies like jumpin jack flash or gotcha or we go right back to the 30s and 40s and just find interesting curiosities to kind of chart the evolution of spy films we also do interviews with people who've you know made or starred in spy movies like uh you know actresses like barbara carrera and Miriam dabo from the bond franchise um we've talked to uh you know various uh, directors from the bond series um we basically whenever we can like to have someone involved in the making of a movie come on and talk about it. we had the writer of firefox for example so it's kind of a, a mix of not one particular type of spy movies, kind of a broader look with real deep dives on some very interesting movies. Yeah. And I've like, I love your show. I listen to your show all the fucking time. It's awesome that you get to talk to bond girls and shit. Like that's fantastic. Um, I was on a couple episodes, so that was pretty cool. We got to talk about (laughs) Kevin Hart movies and (laughs) spy kids Four. spy kids Four. you really know when to pull me in, huh? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, we'll have to give you something better because I think you have kind of gone down the abyss and now it's time to pull you back out. So and the, the concept of the show is also to create essentially the knock list, which is our uh, tortured acronym for need to see official classics, basically the pantheon of all time great spy movies where we vote to get one on the list at the end of an episode. And unfortunately for you, Miles, you have yet to yield a uh, entry onto the knock list. I feel like we've gone to the other list, you know, the dark list both times. (laughs) The disavowed list. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I I really want to do the movie The Debt with you, but we can discuss that another time. It's so good. Definitely. I love that movie. Or Munich. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, and then you have Star Trek podcast. You want to promote those? Yeah, I also do a Star Trek podcast called Subspace Transmissions, where we're either doing weekly coverage of the newer shows like Strange New Worlds or Lower Decks or Picard, uh, or just doing offshoot kind of topics. Like right uh, now, we're going to be recording one on the uh, Traveler trilogy about the character of the Traveler from TNG, or we do episodes like um, just kind of like ranking the worst of the worst Star Trek episodes of the best of the best. We kind of just bounce around all over the place when a show is not on the air. Right on, right on. Yeah, I grew up watching Star Trek with my family. It was never like I was always more of a Star Wars guy because I'm more into like the fantasy, and I feel like Star Trek is more like the science. And like I, I enjoy both show, both shows and movies. I used to see the movies in the theater. Oh yeah, good shit. So yeah, if you want to check out those shows, be sure to do so. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me discdumppod at gmail.com. That's D I S C d-u-m-p-p-o-d at gmail.com don't forget that little pp in there it's important all social medias disc dump with a c you'll find me um i really truly i meant like if you type in disc dump i'm the only thing you're gonna see it's awesome i've nailed that (laughs) um i want to say thank you to the fat rat for the use of the song unity he's got like a bajillion views at this point and uh check him out on youtube that's his preferred way because he gets a nickel if you watch his video (laughs) so yeah (laughs) what you got for me cam i think in the spirit of batman 89 i'm gonna recommend dick tracy 
which is like the one movie I think that picked up the threads of Batman 89 and did it really well, which is the Warren Beatty directed and starring vehicle, the adaptation of the Chester Chester Gould comic strip. Um, Basically, Dick Tracy is this cop who takes on gangsters who are all, you know, deformed in kind of Joker-like ways. And it's an incredibly fun, colorful movie that every shot in the movie is made to look like a comic strip. And he's using very bold, you know, colors. And it's one that I had a lot of fondness for back in the day. And I've done a revisit uh, of the movie in the last couple of years. It looks so beautiful. And it's one that like you could take all these individual shots and basically put them up on that one perfect shot social media account and they would totally belong. So you know what? If you like Batman 89 and you want some of that kind of nostalgia of that era, check out Dick Dick Tracy. Tracy, Get some noir in your life. Did you watch the, uh, the HBO remake? Uh, did they do an HBO remake of Dick Tracy? I thought they did. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I thought oh, they did are, like a show. Are you, thinking of, are you thinking of Perry Mason? I am thinking of Perry Mason. That's a different thing. That's a totally different thing. <laughs> Dick Tracy needs to happen at some point. It is just like rife for reinvention. But I believe Warren Beatty has the rights to it and isn't letting them go. Oh, well. Set it free, Warren Beatty. Set it free. Mm. Set the dick free. <laughs> 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 what a cl- that's the classy way to end that episode yep <laughs> alrighty audience until next time toot a loo